guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode is part two of our discussion with Derek Evely on All Things Bonderchuk, where me and Derek continue our in-depth discussion on Dr. Bonderchuk's training system. I hope you guys enjoy the rest of the interview. Yeah, and obviously it's far removed from, I suppose, more traditional models. So the next kind of few questions I want to ask are, um, I suppose it's just of interest really, because you, you kind of touched on this earlier on. So you were saying, and I heard you say this in Rob Pace's podcast, that athletes with this model, and they kind of had these specific time frames of, you know, of when they reach kind of peak performance, if you want to use that sort of term. You were saying like some athletes, it took them 24 sessions of a particular of a particular sort of block of development and then others, it was 36. Like, so can you touch on that? Like, I mean, because some people are going to ask, yeah. how, how do you know if what you're doing is working? I mean, obviously you're going to use com- okay. the competition exercise. If that's improving, well, then I suppose that proves what, what you're doing. Well, all right. Okay, let's start, let's start at the beginning. So let's say you have an athlete comes out and you don't know anything about them. They're new to you, and you're gonna you're gonna implement this system. So what you're gonna do is you're gonna give them um, you're gonna give them a program, okay? A training program. Mm-hmm. The training program is simply when I say a program, I'm talking about one workout, and that workout is gonna let's we're gonna use a complex methodology or a variation, whichever. And that we're going to start. We're going to have all four exercise exercise classifications. So they literally get a sheet that says, "Today, on today, you're going to throw X amount of throws. You're going to do X amount of SDE specific development exercises. Those are the ones that are broken down in component parts. But you know, so if you're a shot putter, you're going to that's going to be standing throws or some sort of you know that kind of work drills or very specific type real work. Then you're going to go to the weight room. You're going to do cleans. You're going to do five times five, let's say, at X weight. Then you're going to go, then after that, you're going to do, you know, a couple of circuits or you're going to do some general work after that, whatever it is. You're going to do core training or you're going to do, you know, some, you know, whatever, whatever it is, okay? Mm -hmm. That's your workout. They're going to do that workout now, every day. Now, you might give them two workouts. So they will do that workout day one, and they'll do workout number two, day two. And then they're going to do on day three, workout number one again. So you'll alternate them. I've gone as high as doing three workouts, alternating. Okay? So they go one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, whatever it is. The key point, though, is that those three don't change. Those one, two, or three workouts don't change. What they do in that workout at the beginning of the cycle and at the very end of the cycle, whether it be two weeks, three weeks, or three months later, is going to be identical. Okay? So you just keep, it's like Chinese water torture. You're just dripping every time. The drop, the drop stays the same every time. It's drip, 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 drip. If you have one program, every drop is the same. If you have two programs, you have two different drops. Drip, drop, drip, drop. If you have three, it's drip, drop, drip. Okay, you get it? Yeah. But it never, what you don't get is drip, drop, 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 drip, drop
it's not all, you know, it's always the same. It just, okay? Yeah. So it's like, and those drops stay the same all the time. And what you do is you, is you, you measure in workout, you have to have a specific measurable. So it, it works really well in throwing because you can go out and throw every single day and you can measure it, you can measure it, and then it, it, you, you get a lot of data and it makes it very easy to establish a curve. In other events, it's not quite so easy, but it can be done. I know uh, Ty Seven is a really, uh, really accomplished American coach. Uh, he's done it with pole vault, and he doesn't. Although he doesn't measure pole vault every day, I think he told me he uses a thirty meter or a thirty meters uh, flying sprint, and he does it. I don't know whether it's every day or every second day. He does it enough times during the week that he uh, probably does it every day. I guess that he um, that he he takes the times through beams. I guess off that. And he uses that. So whatever you're doing, you need a specific measurable so you can chart it and you record those, you record the results, okay? If you do it and you don't change those, if you don't wave load volume intensity, which means you don't change those workouts, you will find that most, all athletes will fit into one or will have one of three reactions. Okay, and this is where, if you studied any of Dr. Bonnerchuk's stuff, you'll see the three reactions he talks about. It's well documented in his literature. One of, and this is, I don't think it's his work. I think it's Matviev's work of these three reactions. I think he told me it was Matviev came up with that, but I'm not entirely sure. So don't quote me on that. But basically, it's Russian research that found that all athletes respond to training in one of three ways. One is that they initially the results go up. So it's just a straight, they get better with every workout. Generally, you're going to have blips. It's not going to be a straight line, but it's generally speaking, the trend is going to be upwards to a point where they reach peak condition. Okay. When they reach peak condition, after they reach peak, then they're going to plateau if you stay on the same program. We'll get to that in a minute. Mm -hmm. The sec, that's number one. Number two, is the athlete doesn't go up, but they their initial results in training go down, and and they hit a bottom, and then they come back up. Okay, like when I coached Sophie Hitchin, she was always a number one or a number two, always. Okay, very reliable, and then they come up to a peak and they plateau. That's number two. Number three is they plateau. They don't improve. They just stay constant initially. Then they go down, then they come up and plateau. Okay? Everybody follows one of those three. Most people are one or twos. There's I haven't found a lot of threes, and I think Dr. B told me he hadn't he hadn't come across a lot of threes. And I think I heard talk that he thinks there's a fourth reaction, but I I don't I can't don't know much about that. But in my experience, most athletes fit into one or two. You're gonna see one of those two reactions. Now Where they, when they reach peak condition, and this is where it takes, you know, you, you have to experiment. It can take up to a year or two to establish, you know, uh, to, to, to recognize this reaction. And that's the problem with it, is you've got to be prepared to be patient with this. But once you get it, it's like, it's, you know, you know. With Sophie Hitchin, I got it right off the bat in the first 
time I ever gave it to her, I did this system where she was a number two. She went down and skyrocketed back up and with a three-meter PV in the, first, in the first cycle I ever did with her. Now, when they reach peak condition, then what you do is you look at the number of training sessions that that took. Okay? So, to use uh, Sultana as an example, that would be usually eight touches with each program, which means every time she did each program eight times, the eighth one was bang on. Okay? Very reliable. Very reliable. If she did two programs, that would be 16 total sessions. If she did three programs, it would be 24, blah, blah, blah. Okay? That's usually... Now, you can skew it. Now, the, the other thing that we should talk about here is that, you know, this is all given that you have a, a rational oath in there. If you're kicking the shit out of them with a really, really heavy program, then it might take them a bit longer to come reach peak condition. But generally speaking, they'll come into peak condition fairly close to the normal time. You don't, you, this is the other thing. You have to experiment to determine what, um, how long or how many sessions it takes them to reach peak reach peak condition, you also have to experiment with what the load is. Sultana couldn't handle heavy loads, like really big heavy loading. Sophie could. Um, the other girl I coached this last year, Heather Stacy, she needed work. Some people need work to develop. Some people don't. The more, the more explosive their nervous system, I find, the less work they need. But you know, that's another conversation. So, you know, you have to, it's, you have to kind of come up with, um, you know, a rational impl implementation of the system. If you're doing 10 workouts a week, if, so we would do two a day, five days a week, 10 sessions a week with two days off, two full complete days off, then a workout might look something like, you know, 16 to 20 throws in a workout, followed by... 15 reps of a very of a very intensive special strength exercise in SDE. It might be two to three sets of, of a of a of a say an Olympic lift or a squat in the weight room, followed by two sets of six exercises of 12 to 20 reps of a general strength circuit. Like you know what I call that's another thing I stripped off from Dan Path his ancillary strength circuit. So I'd have these circuits at the end the general work that were a lot of twisting exercises, um, smaller muscle, nothing really with the leg, it's all trunk and shoulder exercises, you know, that's, that would be a starting place for the amount of load in each one of those workouts. if I was going 10 sessions a week. If I was going five sessions a week, I might have a bit more work in there. I wouldn't double it, but I would, I would, I might have a little bit more work in there. It all depends on how you set it up. There's a million ifs about this. Okay? Yeah, that, that was, that so was, essentially, no, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead, sorry. So essentially what you do is you, you know, you see when the, you see when they reach peak condition. Now, how do you know if they're in peak condition? Well, it, that takes a while too. There's, you know, the, the first thing is just the obvious curve that they have. Is that if the curve is... You know, if it, if, it, if the curve is clean in that it's not all over the place and, and you get a nice general trend of going down and then coming back up. And I can show you, I can show you some of, uh, of uh, Sophie's and Sultana's and Heather's that are just very clean, very obvious. 
could take them and put them in a textbook and say, this is how it should work. Um, some aren't. Some aren't like that. If you have a lot of travel in there, it's going to put a bit of a, it's going to whack it out. If uh, you know, the athlete's not recovering for some reason, it's going to throw it out of whack. So, you know, you got you to gotta take everything with a bit of a grain of salt. But once you can establish that, that number of sessions, how much work it's going to take to get the peak condition, then you have to repeat it. But you, but you don't just go into another cycle. We'll talk about that in a sec. But over the course of time, throughout a year, you might get, with most athletes, you're going to get about six or seven of these peaks of these development cycles in. And over time, you're going to see trends. You're going to see they're going to, you know, some they might say, like Sophie, when I first started coaching, Sophie, she's always a good example. I use Sophie a lot because she was an incredibly committed athlete, incredibly committed, and would do absolutely everything in her life structured on being a better thrower. And so... There were, she never threw me a lot of curveballs, so she would go home, she would rest, she would do everything I told her to. If, she was, if I told her to get therapy X number of days, she would absolutely do it, wouldn't have to tell her twice. You know, it was, she was a model athlete that way. And when you have an athlete like that, these, these curves become very clean because you don't have all these factors in there fucking everything up. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so... With Sophie, she started with me when she was about 18 years old. And so initially, that those sessions took about 55 sessions, 50 to 55. By the end of the first year, because she was a, you know, athletes adapt that they will, especially if they're young, they're going to improve rapidly. They're going to adapt to the system. So as she adapted, the number of those sessions, it took got less and less. But by year three, it had established itself at about 34 to 36 sessions with two programs. So that would be uh, 17 to 18 sessions of each program. And she would bang, it would be like clockwork She on those sessions and she would peak, okay? Mm-hmm. And so what you do is once you've established that, then you've got something to work with. Now, the other athlete, Mark Dry, I worked with there, the first few years I coached him, he was all over the place. He had to work a lot, and he was he was carrying a lot of paper up and down stairs. That was a job. And so he came to work out with his shit kicked out of him all the time. It was very hard to establish a reaction. But by in the Olympic year, the third year I worked with him in 2012, he given he made a huge commitment, gave up everything else in his life, and just committed to training. And boom, 28 to 32 sessions every single cycle that year was like clockwork. And so we were, I was a, I, you know, for him, um, it was making the Olympic team was the big, just getting on the team was the big thing. He had a big rival in the UK. So our Olympic trials was, was the biggest thing that year for him. At least, you know, that was our main focus was getting on. And after that, we would worry about the Olympics. Well, you know, we peaked him the 28th session on, on, on Olympic trials, and he had a lifetime PV there. It wasn't enough to get him on the team, unfortunately. But, you know, so once you have that, you, you know what that, what, that, what that development cycle, what it looks like in terms of load, what the number of sessions it takes to reach peak condition, then you've got something. So you, you, you look at your, your, where you want to peak, and you just back it up. And 
you just say, I know that the day I I'm gonna the day I want to peak at my main competition, I want that to be the in Sophie's case, it was it was Olympic trials. It was the third. We wanted that to be the thirty sixth session of uh, of her training, and I knew she would peak. Now the problem was in that year is we didn't have the time to do it. We only had the time to cram in thirty four, but it still worked. I think if she had had two more sessions, she would have thrown even further in the in the Olympic trials. Um, but uh, you know, uh, but she broke British record in, in the qualifying and you know, very successful. So, anyways, it was uh, you know that's all, it was. It's that simple. That's all it is. It's not not rocket science. It's just basic math. And so, but so that's the development cycle. That, that's sort of the key to that. But the problem is with it is you can't just follow a development cycle with another development cycle. If you look. In Dr. Bonderchuk's books in the chart, you don't even need to read the text. You just need to look at the charts. If you understand the charts, and I'm talking about the periodization books here, if you look at them, they um, if you follow a development cycle with a second development cycle, it doesn't. The athlete won't reach peak condition again. What they'll do is they'll plateau, go down come back up and then plateau again. It makes a V. I call it the Van Halen V because it looks like the old Van Halen logo. Okay? Um, but they won't actually, theoretically, they won't actually have an increase. One of the principles of this system is that the idea is instead of saying I'm going to peak two, one, or two, or even three times per year, you are going to peak every time you get to the end of a development cycle. Well, with most athletes, I find that means they peak five to seven, sometimes eight times a year. Why is that good? Well, because theoretically, every time you reach a peak condition with a new group of exercises, you grow as an athlete. You, your condition, your overall condition as an athlete grows. And so if you look at, you know, Mark and Sophie, when I coach them, um, those three years. Sophie improved three meters a year in three consecutive years, which is pretty unheard of. Um, the year before she came to me, she as a 17-year-old, and you know, with a 17-year-old, you do just about anything with them, they're going to improve. Well, she'd improved two meters the year before I got her. The next three years are, you know, years you would expect typically less improvement, she improved three meters a year. And I believe it was because the system worked so well for her. Even Mark, with all the with all the interferences in his first couple of years, even he improved almost four and a half, five meters under that system. So that's what you want to see. The idea is the more peaks, the more peak conditions you can you can get the athlete into, the more and the faster overall growth they're gonna have. Make sense? Don't they, uh, and they follow each developmental uh, um, period with what you call the washout cycle. Yeah, well, that's the next thing we're going to talk about. So, so we've talked about the development cycle. That's that. In general, in a very basic terms, I've just described how it kind of works. Can, can I just now, ask? Can I just ask some questions on that before we go on the development cycle? Before before we move on, you still there? Yeah. Uh, just in, in terms of so in terms of deciding like 
volumes with Natalie. So again, with, with the with the competition exercise, specific developmental exercise, the SP and and, and GP, like, is there some sort of like starting overall volumes? With at least there, like, how do you determine how many sets and reps and what intensity volumes to do for each one of these categories when they come to you first? Well, for I mean, if we're talking in the context of something, someone that is wanting to start this system, you need to talk to other people. You need to talk to the athletes. I mean, it's highly individual. Okay. Highly individual. So, for instance, I found with Sophie that, um, and we backed this up with with some hard with some uh, hardcore sport, you know, sports science data that I got from Barry Fudge, who is Mo Frost physiologist. We did some testosterone. He, he analyzed a lot of what we did and found, which confirmed my own sort of uh, empirical observations with her, was that, um, was that 16 to 20 throws per session time, 10 times a week was ideal, okay? Um, with Sultana, it's more like 12 to 16. Highly individual, highly individual. Um, you know, you just got to experiment and find out what works, and that's why that's why this it's you know I, I, you can't give recipe answers in this program. It's it's you have to experiment. You have to experiment um, intelligently with with the loads. But I would start off, you know, less is more, and go with that. All right. So generally. Speaking, I described earlier, you know, what a, a, a sample, where to start, you know, 16 to 20 throws. If, if you're doing 10 times a week or eight times, it, you don't have to do eight or 10 times a week, okay? That's not a magic number. You can do five times a week. But, and this goes back to what I just described about the overall growth, it takes you 30 sessions to peak, okay? And you do 10 sessions a week. You're going to peak in three weeks, right? If it takes you 30 sessions to peak and you do five sessions a week, it's going to take you six weeks to peak. Okay. Why is three weeks better than six weeks? Because you get more peak conditions in a given year. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. the more peak conditions you get in a given year, more the faster your overall growth. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's a big concept here is what Dr. Bonnerchuk, it's all about density. It's all about trying to pack things in intelligently, but it's all about trying to pack things in so you can get more growth in a given year, right? So, back to, so we just described the development cycle. The next thing you got to do is you got to have a rest cycle. So if you want, if you want to follow a development cycle, with another development cycle, which is ideal because I because theoretically you're going to get more growth in the second development cycle, hence more overall growth. You need to have a rest cycle in between, and I just because of what I've observed in it, I call it washout cycle. Like because they're not really rest cycles; they're more um, at least the ones I do, the ones that have worked. I found. You know, it's not so much they're getting rest. You can do pure rest. You can do pure, um, you know, uh, non, non-active non rest. But according to Dr. B, and I've done this, uh, and he's right, it takes about, you need three, four weeks of, of rest in order for, um, in order for the next cycle to work properly. Okay? If you don't give the required rest, then what happens is it skews
use the next cycle. It'll fuck things up. Essentially, excuse my language, no, but you're okay. you're you know, right. it'll speed things up. Okay. So, so what you got to do is you got to that rest cycle is now you want to compress the rest cycle. So you can compress the rest cycle by giving active rest. And what well, the way I look at it, I look at it as you know the old adage. Um, um, change is as good as a rest, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what, what I noticed, what I initially noticed that Dr. B was doing was that in those rest, rest quote, unquote, cycles, um, he was doing, you know, wild change. So there was change in everything. There was change in the exercises, of course, so everything changes. He was going to, a, in the throws, he would go to a light implement, so he would take the stress off throwing heavy implements. He would eliminate the middle two exercise classifications, so that would be the SPE and the SDE, because those are the ones that really kick the crap out of your body. But he would do a lot of GPE and the throwing, so they would throw a light implement to stay in touch with the, with the throwing, so you didn't have to stop throwing in your rest cycle. They would do the general work, very general work, and lots of it because that enhances recovery and helps speed up the, the rest cycle, okay? But not only that, and this is where he is such a genius, he wouldn't, he, it, it wasn't enough for him just to do that. He also changed the structure of training. So rather than doing everything the way you were doing it before in the development cycle, doing a, then B, then C, then D in terms of the exercise classifications. So rather than doing throw, special exercises, weight room, you know, he did, and then that's the end of the workout, he would do something that, you know, if you're familiar with those throwers in that program, it's called a parts program, where they would take a few throws, do some exercises, take a few throws, do some exercises, and they would alternate that. It's a complete change in everything. And if you did that, then I found you could really compress that rest cycle down to about 10, 12 days. And then the athlete would be ready to go and do their next development cycle. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you know if, the if, if you did it right? Well, you only know if the next development cycle worked. And so, you know, this takes time. you got to try. you got to experiment, right? So that's kind of how, how I came across it. Now, Dr. B has taken that, I mean, you know, the whole concept of parts, I only do them in, um, or I mostly do them in the rest cycles. He does parts actually in the development cycles where he does every, you know, doesn't, where he's not eliminating those two middle exercise classifications. He's actually does a lot of parts there now. I've tried it. I didn't find it, it worked, but not, it wasn't, you know, it's a nice change, but that's about it. But I, I pretty much keep those in the rest cycles. I found it's always worked. And it's never let me down. So, you know, that's the rest cycle. Very simple. You alternate development cycles with a rest cycle. Development cycle, rest cycle. Development cycle, rest cycle. And you just keep alternating those and getting as much growth as you can. And, the de and each development cycle has to be different from the one before. You can never, I wouldn't say, it's not a rule, but... You, don't, you want to get away from doing the same exercises, the same implements all the time. Although, you also have to respect the transfer, the whole idea of transfer of training. So certain exercises are going to give you better results than other exercises. Okay? 
you want, so over the course of a year or years of training, you've got to keep your eye on which implements, which exercises in the weight rooms, which special exercises are giving me the best, the furthest distance toward my best, my, when is the athlete looking best on the track, if they're a sprinter, um, or, or if they're and you got to make notes. And so then what you do is you got to juggle these exercises so that when you go into the main competition, you're, you're putting together a cycle of the best of, you know, the best of this athlete's training where you're putting in those key exercises that work the best together and so that you're getting the best effect for the biggest growth at the right time of year. Does that all make sense? Yeah, this doesn't make sense. So, uh, were you saying that you do or don't have uh, S, D, E, and S, P in, in the rest cycle? So, you, you were saying you only do a light C, E, yeah, I don't do those in the middle two. I don't do the middle two. Were you saying Dr. You... does. He has experiments oh, okay. with it, but I've always found by not doing it, it's worked really well. And li like with the developmental cycles, do you find that the athletes that like so again go back to Sophie you were saying 34 36 with her developmental range was do, do, do they get a similar pattern with their rest range or like right I know 10 days and she's ready to go again is yes it, yeah okay yes and what we started doing is not even looking at it as a number of sessions but number of parts okay. so I found I can do four to five parts a session and most athletes need between 50 and 80 parts so once we hit 50 parts we could usually change start the next development cycle what what I and mean, you're probably going to say it's just experiment trial and error what dictates whether someone gets two or three programs so you were kind of saying there one athlete had had uh, two programs and it took him 24 sessions so 12 of each and then whereas someone else might be three sessions of 24 and it's eight of each what dictates that experiment <laughs> experiment literally you um, have to you just try different things and the first time I tried, when the first time I did three programs with Sultana, she exploded. She just had massive growth in it. And so we stuck with that for a while. But then after, you know, doing that four or five times, she got, she adapted to that. And so what that program was, that was three workouts or three different programs. Program one was in the morning of day one. Program Program two was in the afternoon of day one. Mm -hmm. Day two, she'd take the morning off, and she would come back and do program three in the afternoon. Day, that was day two. Day three, she would take completely off. So we only used a three-day microcycle. Okay. So day one was program one and two. Day two was rest in the morning, program three in the afternoon. And day three was complete rest. And she, you know, I think for really explosive athletes, or if you have like athletes with very sensitive nervous systems, I think that that kind of scheme works really well. Or if you decide that you really want to, you know, you really want to increase intensity in a program, like you really want to hit an athlete with some hard intensity, that's a good scheme to go through because you get a lot more rest, right? And then in terms of setting up. The, the micro and you like uh, you're probably gonna say this is trying there again but what determines like like let's say okay let's just for uh, simplicity's sake say Monday through to a following Monday 
what determines whether you go like uh you know like a monday tuesday on wednesday off thursday on friday off or monday wednesday friday on tuesday thursday off or like you discussed there sophie monday a.m. p.m. on off in the a.m. Tuesday back on on the on the Tuesday like what dictates that one that is it just again trial and error the athlete's individual reaction to training so it's trial and error and you have to find out what works for them okay now with Sophie, Sophie and Sultana were opposite so Sophie and and Heather Stacy the other girl that I worked with this year they needed consistent work all the time they couldn't take too many days off or you know Sultana and Sultana and Mark Dry were very similar Mark Dry going into a competition I give him one workout a day every second day he needed lots of rest very very high testosterone guy yeah. and needed with a very explosive nervous system very you know um, he needed lots of rest. I found Sultana was very similar. So you you, um, you would see certain so, you would see certain trends with particular types of athletes, like the highly neurological, well wired, a lot of testosterone athletes. They yeah. kind of needed more rest in between sessions. Generally speaking, yeah. it's a that's a generality, but yes. And so you just have to try different things, you know, and and try try different approaches. And now is the time to do it. This time of year, you know, when you start with a two plus one or a three plus one and I mean again the I mean there's two things that drive to me there's two things that drive um, the setup of the microcycle. Number one is the athlete's individual response to it. Okay, what what works for them? And we just discussed that. Number two is the density. So if you know an athlete if you know that an athlete responds in 30 sessions, let's say, and you know you and you're and you're usually going eight sessions a week, but you don't have time to do eight sessions a week and get 30 in. You might have to go 10 to squeeze the 30 sessions into peak. Now you got to be careful with it because you don't want to overload them. Mm. But generally speaking, you know a lot of that would have to do with with how we set up micros as well. I, I'm the, the priority to me is getting the number of sessions in because I found that even though different, generally speaking, different micro schemes work work better for different athletes. Generally speaking, I, I'd say that the um, the priority is making sure that you get that not that you're that you peak on that you line up your uh, peak with. You want to make sure that you peak at the time of competition, and if you need to, you're better off to push the density a little bit rather than rather than you know um, continue with the normal setup, but but have them compete on a day when they don't peak. So, in other words, if let's say Sultana um, Sultana peaks every eight session, I wouldn't have her compete on session five because I know she's always in the ditch whether that is I've given her lots of rest or not is a, is largely irrelevant so you, you, would, you would you, you would sacrifice the you would sacrifice the idea or you, you would try and fit those extra sessions in even though some people would worry that it may add to more fatigue but you believe yes. you believe that, yeah. that, that by within, his, you, you believe within it, reason yeah within reason Okay, like I'm not gonna be an idiot about it, right? I know. So a really good example is Sophie going into the Olympics. 
when, you know, she was on the British team. It was the home Olympics. There was all kinds of bullshit that we had to go through uh, in that month. Right? I wouldn't say bullshit, but just, just a bunch of stuff that they have to do. You have to do. Like, you, there's kidding out. There was travel to the training camp. There's travel back. There's And so when you factored all that in, we just, I mean, I could have crammed 36 in, but it, it made no sense at that point. It would be too much cramming. But I could cram 34 in, so I crammed 34 in. And so that means, what that meant was there might have been a day or two there where she would have, you know, rather than going 2 plus 1, I might have had to go 3 plus 1 just to squeeze in the extra workout, and it worked, right? But I wouldn't go 5 plus 1. Do you see what I mean just for the sake of getting the numbers in? Because that would be stupid. It would have overloaded her. So, yeah. you know, you have to make common sense decisions based on it. But you also need to recognize the fact that, you you know, that that, that number, that magic number, I, know, I hate to use the word magic, but that, that consistent number where they peak is very important and you want to try to nail that. Uh, in, oh, what was the question I had there now? I had... Uh, I had a second question in my head. I have one here about strength. What was the one I was going to ask about microcycle? Oh, it's actually gone from my head there. Hopefully it'll come back. Just in in, in terms then of, uh, with regards to the, again, those four exercise categories in each session, like every session, are they going like as hard as they can? So like, are they throwing as hard as they can? Are they doing their their SDEs hard as they can I, I know with the, the, the strength work the, in the kind of the exercises that would fall under the classification of S, SD that, that's more or SP that, that like Bondarchuk is more of a fan of keeping that fairly moderate in loading isn't he in, in, so that he's not robbing too much energy away from the top two categories of FC and, and, and SDE would I be right in saying that yes so uh, um, I would say that in the um yeah, I mean, we always, I mean, you hear, you read all these stories, you hear all these stories about Dr. Bonnetrick in the past about doing range throwing, and oh. say, I mean, I've never seen him do it. We've done it, and we did it to great success. I, I did it with Sultana, worked really well, especially technically, really helped things out. Um, you know, but still, they're high intensity. Even if they're range, they're not, I mean, I'm not using a range that's going to require a 50% effort. I'm using a range that's going to require a 96 six percent effort or something like that right I, I don't I don't hold it to those numbers but but I'm just using that as an example um, yeah yeah no they throw hard they throw hard and we measure you know all the time and and you know not I'm not you know it's just they go out and throw and they, they try to throw for distance but at the same time they're also respectful of the intensity in terms of how they learn and things like that um, the uh, SDEs are done with maximum intensity no question about that when you get to the SPEs, this is where there's a lot of rumor and a lot of misconception yeah. about what Bonnerchuk does. I've seen him do, you know, I mean, when, when he first started coaching Dylan, and I coached Dylan up to 20 meters, 1983, and then and we had done a lot of strength. I mean, Dylan was ridiculously strong, ridiculously strong at that point when Dr. B took over. Dylan was doing things like, you know, I bragged about this before, I mean, I saw him hang snatch 315 pounds for, so it was 135 kilos for five hang snatch. 140, okay? 140 uh, kilos. With no belt, no wraps, nothing. Oh, was that 315? Uh, you know, yeah. Sick amounts of weight. 
600 pounds and that, that kind of thing. I mean, it was crazy how strong he was. Um, then Dr. B comes along, and within a week, he's, you, you know, using 60 kilos to step up on a 14-inch on box or something like that, right? And Dylan had a real struggle with that. So there are those stories, and they're true. But generally speaking, generally speaking, I think where it evolved with Dylan was basically doing things in about the 65 to 70 percent 1RM M range, and I'm only using that as an as as an example because they know they never test it. So how do you know if you're at 65 percent 1RM? But if I was to guess, that's about where it is, and he would be moving the weight as fast as he could all the time in most exercises. Not all. You got to remember too. Dr. B would write it down, but he'd never even go into the weight room, so he really didn't have a clue what how they were doing it in a lot of cases. Sometimes he wouldn't, sometimes he wouldn't. So it, it's, it just wasn't wasn't that strict, right? It uh, wasn't he, that did, monitored. Did, did, that uh, do, you, do you or Dr. B, like, would you still have like a sort of a, a systematic setup uh, when you get to those S... Uh, those SP exercises, like when you go into the weight room, are you looking to hit something explosive and then something a little more kind of, if you like, strength orientated, and like a well, this this I, I can't speak for him, um, so I don't I don't I don't think it is all that systematic. He just basic. I remember when he first started with Dylan. He's, when when he first was in my house and we 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 could sit down at the beginning of the week or sit down at the beginning of the development cycle and write the programs. And I remember, you know, he would just, he would ask me, like the very first one, he sat me down, he said to me, he goes, okay, what, what's he been doing? Show me everything. So I showed him all the exercises. And all he simply did was write a program that had brand new exercises, stuff that Dylan had not been doing. That was number one. <laughs> and I remember saying to him, I go, well, and then he started picking these loads. You just go, he's going to do two times, I don't know, like, let's say, you know, on the workout sheet, it would say three times five at um, 80 kilos for a snatch or something. I mean, it was kind of very crazy light, right? And I go, well, how? no, that's a bad example. Let's say it was like a, I re oh, I remember, I remember. It was a, like a speed squat. And he was using um, 100 and, about 120K or something like that. And, and I said, well, how did you come up with that number? Like, why are you picking 120 or 140K, whatever the hell it was? And he goes, oh, I just, just from experience, I just know that, I just know that, you know, for guys like this, this is what, this is what, this is where they need to start. That's it. That's all it was. It was nothing more than that. Which turns out, of course, he didn't realize how strong Dylan was. So, I mean, it was ridiculous. Like, Dylan, the first year, Dylan really struggled with the whole thing because he kept coming to me and going, I, I, this is crazy. I'm not, I'm not lifting. I'm getting weak. I'm getting weak. And he was freaking out. And I kept saying to him, well, just, you know, just, just have faith and go with it. And it, it took a few years, but it came around and the rest is history. But, um, but for me lately, one thing I found really, really helpful was this whole introduction of bar velocity. Yeah, because yeah. The, the reason why that fits in well, it fits in really well with this system. And the reason why it does is because you can establish really effective loads with a, with, I mean, it may not be deadly accurate, but it's accurate enough for me that I can establish a really, a good, proper load, depending on what I want to train, without having to do a 1RM, or without having to do anything even close to a 1RM. And the reason why that's important is because 
you don't want to start these developments in this system. You don't want to start these development cycles off with a huge testing day because then it's going to skew everything after that. It's going to skew everything for a week while the athlete recovers from the testing day. Yeah, basically, so, oh, basically, I, basically, I have an idea of where I want to be, let's say, in, the, in, a, in an Olympic lift, mm -hmm. and we just fine-tune it in the first workout or two based upon the speeds. So I know that with a, with a clean, I want to be about 1.2 to 1.3 if I, if I got my numbers right. Um, actually, I'm looking at my chart here right now. I want to be for a power clean, yeah, but 1.2 to 1.32. I just use, what's his name? It's the American guy that did all his research. Right, man. That, and right, I know man. I want to be up there. So I'll give the, I'll have a very good idea what that's going to be. And we start there. And I may have to tweak it over a workout or two. Just, I, and I've never had to do it in the second workout, to be honest with you. It's always done in the end of the, in, in the first workout. We adjust the weight just a little bit to, to get those numbers. And then we leave it. And that's brilliant. Like, that's, it really works well. So that's kind of how I determined. I do it, I did it with all the SPE exercises. Uh, Brian, Brian Mann is the American guy's name. Brian Mann. Yes. Yeah. And Thank the, you, Brian Mann. That's a great chart. I use it. I used it all the time when I was uh, setting up these things. Very, these guys, Alex Natera, and, you know, the work Mladen did, all these guys that are doing this, we owe them a great, a great uh, debt because uh, they, that really, I think that I'm really excited about that whole area and where it's going. I think it's really helpful for a lot of people. That is one, that is one gimmick that I believe in. I'm yeah, not a gimmick actually, guy at all. Very old school that way, but that's one I think is very useful. I actually have the, the push band myself now and I'm experimenting with it and I'm, I'm finding it excellent. What, what I really find it good for is like I work in more of a team environment and you constantly have one of those two guys who are just like you're always like listen lighten the fucking load <laughs> you're just you're moving it too, yeah. too slow where now if I give them an objective number and say you have to hit the weight within this number you know it's it, it, they can see something objective now whereas obviously before that you're saying go lighter the bars and too slow like it, it you know their reality of how the weight was moving to my reality it takes just bias out of it it's purely objective so I like that in terms of you were just saying about the max testing, that's very. Uh, I heard you say that on Rob Pacey's show too. That you know people do all this max testing at the start, and you're like, well, it eats into your fucking developmental cycle now because it screws the systems up, and the athletes might be back to a sort of a, a level to start their development block for a few days. So you're basically missing out on an actual time to develop because their systems all. Well, screwed. well, hold on. Let me let me let me let me clarify that. I'm not saying that's not good. What I'm saying is is that in this system it's going to skew the result. Now, yeah. if you did it every single time and you factored that into your curve, it's not, it's not such a bad thing. I mean, but I'm just not willing to do that because I just like to keep it simple. You're... There's nothing wrong with max testing and using that as a percentage. Yeah. It's just in this system, I don't, I don't, it just, it just makes it way easier. I can get way more accurate with the loads if I can, without having to, without having a max test. So you know, uh, you but, you were but, you but, were you were saying you still that you still like to dip in and out of, of, of max strength work within your own training. Like, have you do you still do that, or have you gone have you skewed away from it now since the VBT has come out? Well, the, yeah, I mean, I think I think I think I mean for me, I uh, this last year I was trying to find over the last two years I was trying to find ways to just touch into it a little bit just for a stimulus change. 
and just to see it. I did so. I did. Uh, you know, Sultana did not have a good year this year throwing, but there were reasons beyond our. Well, we made some bad decisions in terms of her travel and stuff, and she paid the price for that. But up until that point, she was really. It was an incredible year. She was smashing her PBs left, right, and center, um, throwing some crazy distances before you know, going into May, and before that. We had I had given her a little bit more weight in the squat in the squats, um, closer to max strength, and I think it really she reacted very well to it. Um, so I think that you know um, um, you know there was there's a there's a you know the play I look at it like I don't look at it like okay I got to get as as strong as freaking humanly possible. I look at it like well max strength is just another. It's just another element that I could bring in and out of the program to, uh, you know, to, to create adaptation. So I'm not relying upon it, just like I'm not relying upon anything else. Um, I'm not relying upon uh, a speed strength either. I'll bring it in and out depending on what I think is needed. So Dr. P is a little more, um, you know, he's a little more black and white with that kind of stuff. But I just. For me, I just I just like to you know I'll do whatever it takes, but I'm not I just don't think I try not to think in black and white absolute terms. What do you I just what, I do what, what, I, I go where the facts lead me. Yeah. Let's put it that way. What are you personally calling my strength though? They're above eighty five percent, ninety percent, or yeah, yeah, heavy weights, man, like heavy, <laughs> heavy <laughs> fucking know, like, weights. Yeah, I mean I could get into you know I mean if I'm looking at the velocities when I'm getting down around zero point three point zero point four in a squad if I'm getting down around point four point five yeah. I'm calling that I think I'm in the max strength. That's why I love those things. It just gives me an idea. I don't care what the absolute numbers are. It's that's those that's I would say I don't care. I'd say that's less important to me than all these other ideas we've talked about. Uh, I, I remember the question I meant to ask earlier on. So when, when I was asking about like starting volumes for a particular program or session, and you were saying it's down to the athlete's reaction, what exactly do you mean by that? Do you, do you mean the athlete's acute reaction to that session there and then? like, Or is it their reaction to that session the following day? Or what am I seeing within the first week of introducing this type, type of training to them? Does that question make well, sense? No, I'm talking about across the whole development cycle. Okay, you 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 can't evaluate it until the end of the development cycle. Now, I've had situations where I've just simply stupidly overloaded them. I did that with Sultana last year, like a year ago. Now, I gave her way too much work, and you know she's she can't tolerate volume. So you know she was crying at work for crying. So I just so after a week I had to change I had to I was I mean it was stupid so you know but that was typical that was very um, um, you know she was tough about it but I mean she was not handling the load well at all so I had to dial it back I would normally not do that but I'm not stupid I'm not I'm not you know I'm not going to hurt her just just to prove a point or to stick close to a to a methodology. So I dialed it back, and then that that cycle actually got I got a very good reaction out of her. So you got to you know you got to use common sense. You can't you can't you know just because I'm sitting here saying oh God you know you can't wave load volume and intensity isn't you're going to crush your athlete to prove that point. Yeah, it's just it's uh, what's kind of striking me here is that if if you kind of maybe utilize things like 
I don't know what you think, but maybe if you're utilizing things like HRV and then maybe uh, some sort of subject, uh, so, some other subjective sort of questionnaire, along then with VBT for their uh, SPE stuff, that you may get to that sort of you know magic session number with the athlete a little bit quicker because you're getting that little more feedback every day about where they are. Well, you have to find these things, you know. I mean, I use HRV all year this year. I was talking to um, Mike Bowles. Okay, well, you know, 
and it's all you know the lines up they're in the zone or whatever but that's meaningless if they're if they are performing like shit yeah. in their in their respective event whereas you know I could tell you I can tell you very very accurately there's certain like you know we track weight we track menstrual cycle we track HRV I can tell I can see trends in these things you know I mean one my other girl I coached last year Heather she um, you know it was very clear when she got below a certain body weight performance suffered just dropped or you know so you know you got to make sure that 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 didn't happen um, and it was obvious I mean it was very very obvious you just look at the graph it's right there do, so do, do, I can't I may not be able to explain the physiology exactly I may not even know exactly why physiologically that's the case I just know it is do you think um, you can apply this model to team sports you could definitely take certain aspects of it. do you think you could apply it to team sports the way you could the way it, it seems to be a little more applicable to kind of track and field and to a singular athlete no no I, th- I think I think it's worth the discussion I think it's worth experimenting with I wouldn't you know I mean um, yeah I would, I mean, it's worth I mean, you just got to find a way to be able to um, I, I mean I'm sure there's a way to do it mm-hmm. and Dr. B is very adamant that it's possible I believe him I think it's I think you just need to find the right uh, the right measurables, and that may be, and that measurable may be completely subjective on a coach's on a coach's um, um, coach's observations. I don't know. I mean, it's it's. I mean, these 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 team sports with all their money today have so much. They can invest so much in data collection and that. I, there's got to be a way to figure it out. I just never really thought about it. I'm sure. I'm sure Maladin could come up with a. With with a with a with a system, if he hasn't already done it, I see he got a he, not, he got a new job in Australia. You see that? I saw that. Yeah, yeah, good for him. I'm delighted for him. He's yeah. a good guy. I I I I missed an opportunity to sit down face to face and and talk to him when I was in Qatar when he was working there. And I'm kicking myself ever since, but I was so exhausted when I got there, I just couldn't do it. But um, yeah, he's 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 good. I I need to spend more time on that site of his. I haven't spent enough time, but. Uh, you know, uh, he's uh, he's outspoken guy too, which I respect. So, uh, Derek, we'll just we'll just wrap up here. Um, just one or two little things. Uh, the the guy Cheney, uh, the is he German? Is he Cheney? German. Uh, how do you spell that name, Cheney? T S C H I E N E. Oh, it's it's the it's so it is it is the guy it is the guy that's in Franz Bosch's book. That's the guy Cheney. I just didn't know if I was. Yeah. Friends. I didn't know if I was pronounced. Okay, yeah, so I, I have the name there, so I was just wondering that. Yeah, Bosch's book is a great, he gives a great overview in that book. In running, you mean? Yeah, in running, the one you do with Ronald Kampf. It's, uh, actually, that, that's yeah, a good one. I, I refer to that all the time because rather than reading 20 books on it, you can read that three or four pages. He's got that, and it's a great synopsis. He does you're, a better uh, job than I've ever your, your interview with uh, with Franz on, on on the Canadian website so funny. You're just like the way you, you start off the conversation, and you're like, uh, "Yeah, a funny story." Like uh, I just saw the book on uh, on that website, and I just got it, and uh, then I went to go get my uh, oh, I went to go get my car, get my, get car fix. My car. And he, yeah, you're like, "This book is amazing." You rang Kevin Tyler, yeah, Kevin, get this book. It's, it's a good book. It's a good book. He did a good job with that. Uh, Derek, finally, what work? Uh, before we we um. Before we uh, 
uh, let people know where they can find out more about you. Just some questions I'd like to wrap up the show. And uh, just for all of the coaches listening, I always used to say young coaches, but I have coaches of all ages that says, what would be your top advice to all coaches who are listening right now? And it could be anything, not, not even coach related. It could be like a Dan Fat Zen thing where Dan really just talks, he gives something about like life, just like be a better person or something, but it could be whatever you want. Well, I'm the last person in the world who should be giving life advice to people, that's for sure. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, find a mentor, you know. And, 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 I mean, you know what? You know, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got, and I, I was moved, I, obviously, I mean, I think this way to begin with, but just, you know, when I worked with Charles Van Comedy, and he used to say, deal in facts. Deal in facts. Don't, don't just buy into every piece of bullshit that comes down the pipe, you know, deal in facts. And that, and, and I'd say that probably summarizes bonder check systems better, better than anything. It's, you know, if you don't have proof or, or, and you don't have to have necessarily, you know, the most objective proof there, it, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to come in a double blind study for everything, but, but, you know, like use common sense and, and do what may you know just deal with facts like just just you know don't just buy into bullshit just because somebody says it i mean explore it you can take that take that lead and explore it and look into it do the research but you know too much too much we we just we we focus on tradition we do you know i see too many coaches doing what they did as athletes you know or you know, just whatever, without even thinking, without even without even you know doing any kind of research, and then just do do a bit of reading, talk to some people, and find out what other people are doing. I mean, it's uh, you know I think that's really important. You know, the other thing is you know you know just just you know do things for the right reasons. You know, do things for the right reasons. I mean, if you're doing this because you're looking for any sort of specific recognition, I think you're going to be disappointed, at least in our sport. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, it's largely thankless. So you have to, you, you have to, um, you know, you can spend years working with an athlete and, and the whole thing can come to an end very abruptly. Um, so, you know, you got to be doing it for the right reasons. I've really, in the last, um, in the last, uh, half decade or so, maybe the last decade, I've really sort of come to realize, you know, follow Dan's lead on this and that, you know, a lot of what I do now is just more for this, just to help promote the sport in general and just to help wherever I can. Um, I'm not really in a position anymore to develop high level athletes because it's just the environment I'm in is just very difficult and I've made some decisions, life decisions that are going to get in the way of that. But, um, you know, do things, do things because you, th- for the right reasons, do things because it's good for the sport and, and athletes overall, and, you know, keep your ego out of it, keep your ego out of it, just yeah. try to, uh, you know, which is very hard, I have a huge ego, and I, you know, I don't know why, but I just do, and it's very difficult for me a lot of times to keep my mouth shut, and, but you do, you know, I mean, you got to do things for the right reason, and when you see bullshit, call it. That's the one thing. That's where I speak up. I, I, you know, I mean, I get myself in a lot in trouble all the time. I'm currently in a boatload of trouble, uh, and have been, and I paid, a, I paid a huge price this year financially for speaking my mind uh, with our national federation. And uh, but I don't regret it for a second. When I see in 
and I see, uh, you know, just shitheadedness, I, I, I have to speak up. I, I wish more of my colleagues would do the same, but unfortunately I know it's difficult when you have athletes that are being funded because everybody ends up paying the price for it. But I think, you know, we more of us need to speak up. I think we need to be more vocal about, uh, you know, about being clean. I think a lot of people are afraid to, to, to you know, be proud of that, and they feel like they're being... They're going to be seen as naive or whatever, but you know, overall, I think things are moving in the right direction. So, what I'd say that's about it. What a bit of a bit of a mindless rant there, but no, no, it's fine. Listen, anything goes in this show. What would be your top resources for anyone listening? Again, it doesn't have to be limited to coaching. It could be any any type of resource. Um. I've had, I mean, Dana's turned me on to a lot of books in my career that have really influenced me. Some of them very, you know, from things that are very, um, you know, very technically oriented, obviously, to stuff that is just freaking whacked out, like way out there. One book that really, and I mentioned this at a conference with him not too long ago, or last, maybe a year ago, um, uh, you know, we were asking what books influenced us, and I, there's a book he turned me on to once called Awakening Intuition by Mona Lisa Schultz, and it's really out there book about you know about you know uh, 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 this sort of non-specific energy that we all have, and and how it influences how we make decisions and things like that, and following your intuition. And I've always, you know, I mean, I've always it, that that book kind of confirmed to me that a lot of the you know the the thought processes and the and the gut feelings that I was getting that you really kind of helped me, you know, realize that those are more um, uh, more important than I than I than I gave credit to. And so you know, I a lot of what I do in this system is based on gut. You know, just a gut feeling what I think is going to work, and and not that it's you know, but it's got to be grounded in facts as well. You know, when those two come together, that's when I think it works really really well. Awakening intuition um, books, you know. I mean, you know, science of practice. I always go back to science and practice of strength training, especially the first edition by Zatchiorsky. I haven't read the second edition. I bought it. I just sold it to somebody, but I never got around to reading it. I'm sure it's fantastic, but I, I consider that one of the best texts ever written in sport. I think it's fantastic. Why? Um, why, why, why? Why do you? I've read that book twice. Why do you think it's so good? Because I think he does a. Re- I think it's like. It's like Bershansky's book on super training, but not as thick. And I just think it's a really good overview of some of the more important concepts of training. And he he has a very scientific approach to strength training, very no-nonsense, but doesn't bog everybody down in, in bolos and bolos of jargon. And, and, you know, that's... You know, I just, I just think it's just a very well. I, I, I just say, I, I agree. I, I do think it's a good book. Um, even though I think the last three chapters in it are a bit fucking. He talks about training kids and female athletes and older athletes, and it's kind of stuff that you already know. So I think it was just filler the last three chapters. But the first about two thirds of the book is excellent. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I, I love when he, you know, he, he talks about the two factor training theory and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think it's very important stuff for for coaches to understand. Charlie Francis's manual, anything by Charlie is always really good. Um, you know, had huge influence on me that his very, I, I only have his very first training manual, 
But, I mean, I used to go back and read that every year. It was just amazing book on, you know, um, conceptually, on, on how to implement training. Um, you know, any article I, I, by Dan, Dan hasn't written a book per se, but he's written a lot of articles. A lot of that stuff is, you know, hugely influential to me. Uh, Bonner Chuck's transfer training is a big one. Um, uh, you know, I mean... Block, block periodization uh, by instrument. You like that, didn't you? Oh, oh yeah, sir, and any of his stuff. That's he, a great he book. He came up with a new one, and I, I'm dying to read it, but I don't have it yet. I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm actually gonna buy that book, the new one that just came out. It's on USEF's website, but uh, yeah, but block periodization is one of my favorite books as well. I really, really like that book. Yeah. And Derek, finally, the what what would you say have been the biggest mistakes you've learned lessons from? Well, um, <laughs> wow. Um. <laughs> the silence says it all. You know what? I mean, I mean, like you know, it's hard to say. I mean, when I coached in Britain, I had one or two athletes that I made some pretty big mistakes with. I had a discus thrower that I had. I, I implemented. I thought he was a lot fitter than he actually was. Um, you know, he ended up leaving me because uh, he didn't have a lot of faith in what I was doing with him. Although he was actually doing pretty good. Um, you know, I, I implemented some some uh, uh, special strength stuff that kind of, you know, I mean, I'm talking very specific little examples. I don't really have a big history of doing things like that because when I, you know, most of my career I've worked with athletes that I've brought up from a young level and, you know, I was very systematic, very well planned, I thought. And, you know, that 11 years I worked with, the, with Dylan and Gary Reed and those guys that came out of the Camelot's Club, I mean, I had no injuries. None, and I've gotten some really good feedback from the from the great coaches that they went on to. That you know they were well prepared and they were you know injury free and you know they were just really easy to work with after that. And I, I think I, I think that's a reflection of some of the the planning and the and the research that I did as a young coach. Um, but uh, you know I mean I make mistakes every day. You know I mean I'm a hard guy to deal with. I know that I was a hard, a very hard guy to deal with back then, and uh, those guys were, you know, I was lucky that Dylan, in particular, was as patient as he was with me, uh, because I could be a real prick at times. And um, but uh, you know, um, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, um, I, you know, usually anytime I've ever gotten into trouble, it's because I followed, I just followed blind advice from people without really. Without thinking, without really considering what I was doing closely enough, you know. Luckily, I haven't injured too many athletes. I've been pretty good that way um, because I, you know, I've always sort of followed Charlie's lead and and my other coach Andy Higgins. You know, taught me just you know be cautious, like don't don't overdo it, like you know uh, think before you act. So, would you be good friends with Derek Hansen because of Charlie? Do, do you know Derek? Yeah. I used to be, I, I, and, and I only say that because I haven't talked to Derek in a long time. I mean, he's another great resource. That Those years he worked very closely with Charlie and put a lot of that stuff out for him. As he did the world a huge favor there, man. I mean, he put out some great, great stuff yeah. that uh, really sort of conceptualized a lot of Charlie's ideas and put it on paper, and I think... I. Not sure that would have happened without Derek. I think he 
to my knowledge. I I, I interviewed him for the well, podcast. Well, it's Jensen Lee that's in the UK now. Yeah, that's right. I think I think I, I'm not sure what he's doing. I I interviewed uh, Derek there during the summer for the podcast. It was actually a very well received show. I I yeah I just know him through through obviously the internet media, but uh, he he's a great guy. Um. Uh, Derek, that's basically it. But there was one, one final question. I promise, I, I meant to ask. Uh, just w- w- with Doctor Bonnerchuk, did he ever actually tell you how he came to these ideas? Like, how did he come up with this system? Um, uh, just experimentation. You know, he just he's an out there kind of guy. He just he he is. If if there's one thing you're ever gonna learn from Bonnerchuk that's important that you know other than the system that's really important is that is to experiment that guy is i mean his coaching all his coaching is is one gigantic experiment almost to his detriment at times i mean he just he just throws stuff against the wall records reactions and see what sticks and then notices trends that's that's how he coaches and it's been you know like super effective with him um you know uh yeah, I mean that's it's it's just I I mean he's really well educated, very 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 bright. Obviously, he's you know almost too bright sometimes, <laughs> but he really uh, you know he um, yeah it's all about the experimentation with him. He's he's it's it's amazing to watch him work sometimes. But uh, yeah, I mean I and I just I tried to talk to him about that. You know, it's hard to have those conversations with him. I mean. But basically, you know, I just know it's all about collecting data with him and uh, and just trying different things. Simple as that. Has his English got any better <laughs> since living in Canada? Yeah, it's it's better. It's not great. It's you know he doesn't really. Um, yeah, he made there was a while there he was making a, a big effort to try to improve his English, but really he just you know he's he's. I don't think he sees appointment anymore, and he doesn't really need it too much. He gets his English is good enough to get by here, and so I think he's he's um, you know he's he's fine with it. All right, Derek, where, where can people? I think he understands way more than he used to. Oh, I, I'd imagine. he doesn't express English very well, but he understands English far better than than he used to. I know that. Yeah, I'd imagine so. Uh, where can uh, the listeners find out more information about yourself? that wraps up this show with mr derek evely what an absolutely amazing podcast uh definitely the longest podcast we've done on the show so far so guys as always just want to say thanks for downloading thanks for supporting the podcast i'll talk to you soon take care and stay strong